This is Chapter 110 of the WCBS Author Talks Podcast. Follow us on Twitter and Instagram at WCBS880Books. I'm Lisa Chernkovich. Coming up, a novel featuring a real-life woman who talked about sex like other people talked about the weather. Plus, a love story that's a ghost story in disguise. Did you know that before Cosmopolitan was the women's magazine it is today, it was a literary magazine that published the likes of Jack London, Edith Wharton, and H.G. Wells? Well, that all changed in 1965 when the now legendary editor Helen Gurley Brown took over. Her story is the focus of Park Avenue Summer, the new novel from Renee Rosen. It's also our beach read pick this week. Renee spoke to our Marla Diamond about the complex woman who defied all expectations. Your book has been described as Mad Men Meets the Devil Wears Prada. Take us inside the world of your your main character, Alice Weiss. So Alice Weiss is a young girl who grows up in Youngstown, Ohio. Um, her mother had uh, grown up in New York and has since died in um, an accident. And uh, her fiancé has jilted her. And her father has since remarried a woman that she's not all that crazy about. And so she makes a clean break and goes to New York to not only chase her own dream, but to sort of fulfill her mother's dream of getting back to New York. So it's sort of that story of the young, wide-eyed girl from the Midwest who arrives in the big city. And uh, she has her own dream. She really wants to pursue photography. But through a turn of events, she ends up being Helen Gurley Brown's secretary during the very early days when she just takes over at Cosmopolitan Magazine. So it's important to mention that the year is 1965. It's the spring and summer of that year. Things were very different back then. And thus the Mad Men connection. Um, The book is really a, a story about Helen Gurley Brown. Um, the founder, not the founder, but uh, the creator of the Cosmo magazine that we know today. Um, did you have any connection to her? Um, how how much research did you have to do to sort of get the backstory, the story that, you know, we might not know from the obituary? Yeah. So, you know, I started, I was very fortunate that, you know, when Helen Gurley uh, Brown died in 2012, there were some wonderful biographies that came out about her. So I started with that. And obviously, I read Sex and the Single Girl, which was her very scandalous uh, best-selling book that came out in 1962. So I had Helen's own words there. Um, And then at that point, I um, I just got very, very lucky. I was talking to a friend of mine, um, and he said, what's your new book about? And when as soon as I mentioned Helen Gurley Brown, he and his wife both said, oh, we have to introduce her to Lois. And Lois Cahill regarded Helen Gurley Brown as her second mother. She was Mommy Helen. Hmm. And so she vetted the book for me. She would catch things. She'd say, ah, ah, you're sounding too much like Anna Wintour there. It's Uh. not Helen. And um, just shared with me things like Helen used to eat her salads with her fingers. And, you know, um, she always had runs in her stockings. Her wigs were always a little off kilter. Um, And she also uh, gave me some insights into the 
psychology of Helen Gurley Brown. You know, she was always about two steps ahead of everyone else in the room. She had an end game. She knew exactly where she wanted a meeting to go. She would sort of guide everyone. So I had that. But then I also came back to New York. I had lived here for a short period of time, but came back to see Manhattan through the eyes of Allie Weiss, who's the main character, as well as Helen Gurley Brown. So I had a lot of tough research to do, like at the St. Regis and the Russian Tea Room and things like that. Yeah, thankfully, those places are still open. Yeah. <laughs> Tavern on the Green. Yes. Um, and the 21 Club, you mm-hmm. mentioned yeah. uh, Helen Gurley Brown having a meeting there. Um, but really what is striking is just how difficult it was for her, really any woman, yeah. to... Uh, to be a leader, you know, to be a manager, um, to have men listen to your ideas. And she was able to craft a whole new magazine on her own. She did not get any help from the Hearst people. And sex was taboo in 1965. And single girls weren't having sex then. Right. Right. And, you know, she really had both hands tied behind her back. You know, Helen's claim to fame up until then had been this book, Sex and the Single Girl. And, you know, so a lot of the staff members at Cosmopolitan, which had been around since the 1800s, I think a lot of people assume that Helen Gurley Brown started Cosmopolitan, but it had been a literary magazine that had published Mark Twain and Kipling and Edith Wharton. And, you know, so Hearst was terrified that she was going to turn this magazine into a version of her book, which is what she did. Uh, But they, you know, staff members quit. She had an impossibly tight budget. She had to be very, very creative of how she was going to pull this off. She was a tiny woman. A little Uh, powerhouse, though. (laughs) Right, right. To do something like that in in that era. Unbelievable. Um, So... You delve into the women's lib movement a little bit. Betty Friedan is part of of the book. Um, And, you know, this has been the subject of a lot of debate. But I'm wondering, you know, having done all this research on Helen Gurley Brown, do do you think that she helped or hurt the women's lib movement? Oh, I think she definitely helped. I mean, you had these various figures, you know, on opposite ends of the spectrum. Um, You know, Betty Friedan or Friedan. they did not like each other, Helen Gurley mm-hmm. Brown, and they made no bones about that. But I think both were very instrumental to bringing women to where we are today. Um, I think Helen Gurley Brown started a conversation that no one else was having about sex, and she edited that magazine with her, what she called her girls, in mind. You know, somebody has to be a big sister or, you know, very open-minded mother to these girls. Um, so, you know, but Helen was also still preaching, you know, independence and go out there and have a career. This was a time when women were finding options and were flocking to big cities to take advantage of career choices that their mothers and grandmothers didn't have. And the women's lib movement really yeah. steamrolled in the 70s and yes. into the 80s and women beca- became financially secure. But um, did uh, you start writing the book? before the Me Too movement? No, ironically, I there was no Me Too movement when I started this. And, you know, I, I wonder how Helen Gurley Brown would embrace that now. And I think she would love the idea of women being strong and standing up for themselves. 
Um, I think she would be a little confused about, you know, and actually Lois and uh, had discussed this too, like what we can't flirt in the office place anymore, you know, because for Helen, that was just sort of where her mind always went, you know, that it was always about, there was always sexual tension in the workplace and she didn't necessarily see that as a bad thing. So I'm not sure that she would be totally in step with where we are today. Yeah, uh, during the Clarence Thomas hearings, yeah. she made a public comment that really upset people, uh, saying, you know, what's all this fuss about? You know, any sexual attention is is, is good. Yeah, you should be flattered. So right. she And I, I sort of, every from everything I've read about her, I think that would have carried over even into today's time. So, Right. Um, tell us something we don't know about Helen Gurley Brown. Uh, one thing that I think readers might be surprised is, even though she was a feminist and she was very independent, she was also extremely dependent on her husband. And very vulnerable. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Very, very um, you know, she was, she wore her heart on her sleeve, you know, and, but she really didn't make a move in terms of uh, cosmopolitan or even her career. Um, without David Brown. And David Brown was a very accomplished uh, Hollywood producer. He did, and not in any particular order, but, you know, Driving Miss Daisy and Jaws and Sting and Valley mm. of the Dolls and all that. And she relied on him to write the cover blurbs on the magazine. Whenever she got stuck, she went to David. She would not have a luncheon meeting unless David was in the same restaurant a few tables away. Just in case a meeting went south, he could swoop in and get it back on track. And he was also the one who, uh, she was already married when she wrote Sex and the Single Girl. And it was David Brown who said to her, you were the most fascinating single girl I ever dated. You should write a book about it. And that's where, you know, so I think this, uh, you know, uh, reliance on her husband was something that surprised me during my research. I think it might surprise readers as well. I'm wondering if she could have done it without him. I think, I don't think the idea is, I think she would have gone in a different path. She would have done something spectacular and, and, uh, and uh, sig- very significant because that just seemed to be her personality. But I don't know that it would have been that. That magazine paved the way for so much of what we see today. Every women's magazine, right? I mean, she took, uh, you know, illustrations off the cover and put a woman with uh, deep cleavage on the first edition in July of 1965. And that was scandalous for that time. But, you know, it's... It's except it's you know it's tame by today's standards exactly. But at the the time of that shoot, Renata was the cover model on that July issue, and um, her shirt is actually on backwards because it was very high collar and scooped in the back. Funny. And as the legend goes, Helen turned the shirt around to get you know, so all eyes were on the cleavage. That is funny, and and she really showed that there was an audience for yeah, this she, because the circulation went from hundreds of thousands to millions. Yeah, yeah, and she knew sex sells. Right. She just you know she she had been advertising uh, copywriter prior to that. In fact, Peggy Olson from Mad Men was uh, based on her, so she took all those marketing smarts and her gut instinct and change the face of women's magazines. And and I also think uh, the comparison between her and, you know, today's clickbait or Twitter, you know, she put those headlines yes. to make you pick that magazine up Absolutely. and buy it from the supermarket stand. Absolutely. She knew exactly how to do that. Like, even when she did the Burt Reynolds centerfold, uh, and this is years later, 
um, she never revealed who it was on the cover. I, she said something, I'm paraphrasing now, but it was like, guess who bears all in the first, you know, male new, you know, centerfold. So, you know, everybody, that ma- that issue just flew off the shelves. Yeah. And, and I suppose when she first started that uh, Hearst thought she was going to turn this into a woman's Playboy. Absolutely. Magazine. Absolutely. And, um, you know, she did look to Hugh Hefner as sort of a mentor. Yeah. And she studied how he put together Playboy and the sort of advertisers he had in there. Because when she inherited Cosmopolitan, it was full of like Preparation H ads and right. Mr. Clean. And she's like, oh, not sexy. No, no, no. Yeah. So, you know, she went after a more glamorous advertisers. And um, one of my favorite scenes actually in the book is when Hugh Hefner visits the Cosmo offices. And that's all I'll say about that. (laughs) (laughs) He turns a few heads. Yeah. Um, And she was also able to convince major corporations, um, you know, to advertise in the magazine. This is, you know, we got makeup ads and we got uh, what else? Mm -hmm. Uh, Cosmetics and uh, fashion. Fashion ads, right. Um, And I'm wondering if those advertisers were also a little leery about doing this. Well, she did something that was very clever and not done in that uh, that day, but... As an ed- the editor-in-chief, she got very involved in the advertising, and that had not happened before. That was left to a different department. But you had mentioned the 21 Club. She started doing uh, these monthly luncheons at the 21 Club where she would invite the advertisers that she wanted. She would invite their ad agency, their, their key personnel, and she would give them like a dummy magazine, a sampler of what the upcoming issue was going to be like. And she would just get them so excited about the magazine and the content. And, you know, these are how many single girls there are in the world. And, you know, you're going to be able to target them. And this is what they want. And she was so in tune with who her her readership was that – and she was a good saleswoman. So – uh, you know, that was how she brought in, uh, you know, the ad revenue, which kept the magazine going just, you know, quadrupled. Mm-hmm. And uh, what were you able to uncover about her early life? She did, she had a very difficult yes. childhood. So she uh, was born in the Ozarks in 1922. Uh, the, the family uh, lived in a trailer park. Her father died in a very just kind of freak elevator accident when Helen was 10. And I think that really impacted her and her view of men and all. Her older sister, Mary, contracted polio shortly after that and was confined to a wheelchair for the rest of her life. And so I think Helen had her issues with that. But the real uh, impact in Helen's young life came from her mother, Cleo, who um, from a very young age would tell Helen, you're just not pretty enough. you got to use your brain because you're just not that you know, you're not a pretty girl, so you're going to have to use your smarts. And so Helen grew up with this uh, really horrible self-image, and she would call herself a Mouseburger. She was the original Mouseburger. Before she was the Cosmo girl, she was the Mouseburger, and she reinvented herself. And within about five minutes of meeting her, she would tell you, I'm wearing a padded bra, I have false eyelashes on, I'm wearing a wig, you know, I've slept with 166 men, and, you know, she just uh, completely transformed herself. Uh, that's unbelievable yeah, how she, had she transformed nose fixed. She had, you know, and she was very open about all this stuff. Yeah. Uh, she must have thought from a very early age, you know, I have to get out of here. You know, I yeah. have to get out of Arkansas. Yeah. And, <laughs> um, 
I think you she know, had big, a big imagination, and yeah. she was sort of always um, sort of drawn, I think, to celebrity and, you know, a glamorous world, and, you know, she just wanted to, and she would always say, you know, I, I was just this poor girl from the Ozarks, you know. Um, and she was just a secretary from, she was actually, she was an escort first, I think, and a secretary for many people, and somehow broke out of that and your main character also Alice wants to be a photographer is a secretary yeah so Helen actually held 17 secretarial jobs wow. in five years <laughs> and then she had worked for um, Foot Cone and Belding in Los Angeles and the creative director the head of the uh, creative department said mm, you know this Helen Gurley she seems kind of clever and I think I'll give her a shot at uh, at writing some advertising copy and she did so well at it that she became one of the first female copywriters. And I think that she was always one to really empower the women around her. She wanted to see people do their best. She wanted to make them comfortable and at ease because she felt that that was what brought the best out of them. Now, it's not to say that she didn't rip their copy to shreds with her red pen and all that, but um, you know, she, she demanded a lot of them. But I think she really... She was all for girl power, you know, and, and helping to and empower other women. And, and she helps Ollie along the way, too. Right. She gives her some interesting advice, but she also helps her. <laughs> right. The single girl, yeah. um, you know, in the city. She was uh, way ahead of her time. Um, you have written other historical fictions, I believe three or four other historical four, fictions. Four other books. But nobody quite as racy as Helen Gurley Brown. No, 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 no. Uh, Why did you say, hey, I, 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 I want to delve into her life? You know, what happened was I'd actually been binge watching Mad Men. Oh. And I just fell in love with New York during that time period. And I wanted to set a book against that backdrop. And I was, like, trying to find a glamorous industry to anchor it on. And, you know, advertising had been done. So I started thinking of a magazine. And originally it was a fictional magazine with fictional, all fictional characters. And I was talking to my editor, and it was literally a blinding glimpse of the obvious. Like, hello, mm -hmm. Helen Gurley Brown and Cosmopolitan Magazine. And then we were kind of off and running in that direction. So it I, I don't even think I realized what I was getting myself into with the research with her because I didn't know that much about her. I had an older sister. I used to steal her cosmos and go to the bedside astrologer and all, but I didn't realize um, how strong uh, Helen Gurley Brown was, how influential she was, how, just how controversial she was. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. And you know, she talked about sex the way other people talked about the weather. You know, yeah. I, I don't think she was capable of blushing, you know. Right. I, I, I don't know. Maybe it was her difficult background. You know, she wasn't pampered. She didn't come from high society. She eventually became high society. Yeah. But I don't <laughs> um, know but... if she ever really saw herself that way. She always took the bus. Mm. She took the bus to work. She brought her lunch, you know, Um she was, you know, she would take leftovers and, you know, um, which I'm sure she never ate because I don't right. think, I don't think anyone cared well, less she, about food. Than she was Helen 100 Gurley pounds Brown. and yeah. one, that was Stopping five pounds what? over her yeah. goal weight, right? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> A splurge for her was an extra helping of diet gelatin. You right, know, so. exactly, right. Um well, it's such a fascinating uh, look into a very accomplished and interesting and complex woman. And what's your next project? 
So right now I'm working on a book called The Social Graces, and it's the story of Mrs. Astor and Alva Vanderbilt vying for control of New York society Uh, during the Gilded Age. Wow. Lots of fun with that one. (laughs) Right. So you had to go way back into New York for that. Yeah. Um, Well, thank you so much for joining us. The book is Park Avenue Summer. Renee Rosen is the author. I hope this isn't insulting, but it's a wonderful beach read. Absolutely. <laughs> okay, I don't Not know insulting at all. Authors get insulted by that, but it really is a great, fast read, and it's so much fun. Thank you so much for joining us on Author Thanks Talks. For, thanks for having me here. An extremely vivid dream and a quotation by a fellow writer inspired The Lost History of Dreams, the debut novel by author Chris Walter. It's a Victorian Gothic reworking of the Orpheus and Eurydice myth, and it's part ghost story, part love story. Chris recently stopped by our studios to talk about the inspiration for her novel, what it was like to tackle poetry and prose in the same book, and the trip she took down the research rabbit hole. The tagline for the for the book and what's in all the press materials is that all love stories are ghost stories in disguise. Tell me what that means. Well, to clarify, Isabel, who is the grief-stricken cousin in my book that I mentioned earlier, she's the one who states all love stories are ghost stories in disguise. But I have to give credit where credit is due. The statement is actually reworking of a David Foster Wallace quote from The Pale King, which is, every love story is a ghost story. And I did use it as my epigraph. Um, I think that for myself, though, I have to say that as I've grown older, I feel that I've become such a repository for memories. And I don't know if this has happened to you, but the memories feel very tangible at times, almost like ghosts, which is, is, I don't know if it's a scary thing or a wonderful thing that I know that for myself, sometimes if I close my eyes, I can really invoke the feeling of what a particular day was like for me, that, for example, there's this one day that I spent walking along the Chelsea Embankment when I was working on, on lost history, and I remember how happy I felt and how hopeful, and I can recall there's these wonderful iron benches on the Chelsea Embankment. I can remember how they kind of glistened with, with the fog and looking out onto the Thames. And even though that's in the past, it feels almost, it's so present. Um, so when I say about ghosts and love stories, I think it's that when you really love something, it never really does leave you. You can really bring it back in a way. Or as a character in Lost History says, he he suggested that it's almost like a mathematical, equa- mathematical equation that love plus memory equals presence. It's also this idea, you know, you could always bring it back to present and it, it also can stay with you and haunt you. As Robert, my postmortem photographer, says, he says rather tersely at one point, I think the only thing that haunts us are our regrets. <laughs> <laughs> I think there's some people who probably agree with that. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's like I was talking to a friend the other day and she said, you know, what I realized as you get older, it's the things you don't do that you regret rather than the things that you do do. But I suppose that means you've led a pretty clean life. Yeah. <laughs> One would hope anyway. So tell me a little bit about the inspiration for the book, because I thought that was pretty cool. And I got that. I had to read through the whole book until I found it. But uh, right. It's a mentioned cool in my, my acknowledgments. Um, it sounds a little cliche, but the inspiration for The Lost Sister Dreams was an actual dream. Um, I had this dream one night in which I saw a man and a woman arguing in a room that was lit only by a fireplace. They were like silhouettes rushing back and forth before me. And they were extremely agitated with each other. And they were arguing over an inheritance. Um, 
They were dressed in mid-Victorian clothing, which I could tell because the woman was wearing crinolines. Um, if it was later, the, like let's say 1888, there would have been a bustle, which is a very different silhouette. You can tell I'm a history geek, right? Just a little bit. <laughs> yeah, just a little bit. But um, anyway, I woke up and I had no idea what I had dreamt. It felt like I had just fallen into this other place in time, and I, I didn't feel like it was a past life, which I don't even know if I believe in those. But it really felt like I was given this gift of this inspiration. Um, and I, I really do believe that the muses kind of tap us sometimes and say, like, hey, here's this idea, run with it. Uh, so I'm not one to turn away a gift from the muses. So I wrote down the scene. And I set to figuring out what it all meant. And three years later, here I am with this with this novel. Um, but as I wrote, it just gradually expanded to include this Nessa story about a poet who's rather Byron-esque, that he has this rather scandalous past, but he straightens up when he meets the love of his life, who is a rather fragile woman who is, um, has a tragic past of her own without giving too much more away. So it's also the story of their marriage and their love. Let's talk about the poetry because the book is infused with poetry. And I've always found it fascinating when an author has not only put a spectacular novel in place, but on top of that has written poetry or something else on uh, something else creative that they've worked into the book. What was that process like for you? That process was terrifying. <laughs> um, I have to say that I wrote the poetry last. I did have various lines for the poets, for the poets' poems, um, which I sprinkled throughout as I was working. But the actual poems themselves, I waited until I finished the entire poem, uh, the entire book. And I think my reason for that was that I really had to understand the poet's full history or his lost history, if you will, before I was able to write the poems, um, besides the fact that I was terrified, because I'm, even though I've taken poetry workshops when I was in college and such, and I do not consider myself a poet. Um, I have the utmost admiration for people who spend their entire lives devoted to that art. I, I do not underestimate how hard it is to write a poem. Um, but I think that by the time that I had written the entire book, I had a very clear sense of who my poet was and what he would write about. So from there, I created a fake body of work for him, which he had all these books. One was called The Weight of Air, which was these series of bird, po bird poems. Um, and then there was another one, which was called Cantos for Grown Children, which was reworkings of fairy tales inspired by the Brothers Grimm. And finally, there was the, his final book is called The Lost History of Dreams. So... In a sense, my novel becomes a book within a book because many of the poems from The Lost History of Dreams are sprinkled throughout my novel. Um, I also I think it also comes down to, I think that a lot of times writing fiction is an act of ventriloquism in a way, that you're taking on all these personas and you're really channeling them again. And again, I guess that goes back to the whole idea of the muses kind of tapping you on the shoulder, which makes it sound very mystical. And sometimes it does feel that way. So I was writing these poems, and as I was jokingly saying to somebody, I'm putting on my faux Victorian poet hat, <laughs> and I would just go in there and do it and hope for the best. I guess, you know, you know, Robert at one point in the book says that books are easy unlike people, but that writing them are another matter. <laughs> yes. I mean, I, I guess I, that, that's some of your personal feeling bleeding through a little bit. Um, 
somewhat, I've been lucky that unlike Robert, who has a serious case of writer's block, um, I've never really had writer's block. I've had instances where I've had to put work aside and wait to figure things out. And then I just usually work on something else. Um, but uh, it's funny you mentioned that quote because a number of writers have, have written me and said, like, yes, yes, it's so true. It's so true. <laughs> and I know that, you know, uh, the, the whole idea of writer's block, you have some people who argue that it doesn't exist. And, uh, you know, others who are like, no, it's totally something that overtakes you and you just can't get past it. Well, I always think that writer's block, if you want to call it that, it, it makes it sound so final and so like something like it sounds like an outside force like that comes down and swoops on you in the same way inspiration does. I'm like, ah, oh, that's it. Writer's block. You're done. Get out of here. The muse disappears. <laughs> yes. Um, but I think it's more that you don't know enough. And when that happens, it's usually a sign to me that I need to either do more research because I am writing historical fiction and, and I totally gig out on that stuff. Um, some friends of mine, we talk about it going down the, the research rabbit hole because it's so fascinating. You know, all of these these stories within stories that you could find about various historical figures or about a place um, or even about like historical events. It's it's just, it's, it really is a way to, to bring back and, you know, the ghosts of the past, if you will, if you're doing it right. So that's one thing. And a lot of times it's also if I'm feeling blocked that I just don't understand my characters fully. And then I need to kind of take a step back and find what is it about them that drew me to them in the first place, or in the case of my dream, um, find out who were these people I dreamt about. For a while, it took me, I don't know, for the first year that I worked on Lost History, believe it or not, Robert was actually a divinity student. Hmm. And I thought that he'd had this crisis of faith and all of this other things. And I gradually realized, no, he's a historian. He's not a religious dude. He's a historian. <laughs> he's a historian who, when we meet him, is a, a, a photographer. He becomes a postmortem photographer. And as he says, he feels it's a way for him to preserve history on a silver plate. Um, and I also found the whole history of postmortem photography to be really fascinating, where you know, the one thing I should also take a step back and describe about Victorian mourning traditions, I became really interested in them while I was writing Lost History. And part of the reason for that was that my mother-in-law died unexpectedly. And it was just such a shock, um, partly because she'd gone in for a routine surgery, which turned out not to be routine after all. And it was no malpractice. It was just that we didn't realize she had a heart condition. And Next thing you know, you know, you get at the 2.30 a.m. phone call, and and it was really devastating because she was one of these people that uh, my cousin, when she died, described her as the embodiment, embodiment of um, living, loving kindness, and she really was. So one of the things that I was not prepared for, I don't think you can ever really be prepared for the loss of somebody you love, was how grief really has a timetable of its own. And I looked to the Victorians because they understood how there was a way, I don't know how well this worked for them, but to a 21st century person looking back, it seemed as though they understood how to regulate grief by using these rituals. For example, um, they were they all wore mourning clothing, which if you were wearing black, and it had to be lusterless black, like it couldn't reflect any light or 
like usually bombazine or crepe, or you would wear that for a certain amount of time, and it would signify to people who came across you that you were in mourning for someone, so you should be a little kinder, a little gentler. Understand if you don't want to go out to the latest soiree or whatever, and actually you were expected not to go out in public for a while. Of course, as a modern Brooklynite, all it says is that I'm a modern Brooklynite if I wear black. <laughs> so that didn't really work. Um, or, for example, if you were wearing lavender, it meant that somebody had died six months ago, and they would maybe, you know, you would take an invitation to tea or go out, and they you would be ready for some sort of interaction with the world. But I didn't have that. Um, anyway, back to the postmortem photography. Um, the other thing that I became very aware of was when I began researching it was that it wasn't until 1838 um, that daguerreotypes, which were the first commercially available process for photography, was available. Well, actually, it wasn't even made available to 1839, but it was 1838 that Louis Daguerre wrote a prospectus to potential investors, inviting them to invest in this new and better method of whatever, you know, so the one thing that he wrote which really struck to, struck me when I was reading his prospect, prospectus was that um, you can also photograph living people, he wrote. However, there are certain difficulties because, of course, they may move. And at that time, photography, you would have to sit still for a daguerreotype for like a minute or more. But, of course, the dead don't move, which made it a perfect venue for recording those that you loved. So the other thing that you also have to remember is that at that time, there weren't selfies, there weren't Instagram. Many times, this would be the only photograph you would have of a loved one, which would make it a very precious thing. It would be an actual recording of their history. So it made sense that Robert would end up doing that as a way to banish his own ghosts of his own past. I guess it's sometimes, you know, research is great, but that that's the rabbit hole you're describing falling into. It is into. a rabbit hole. <laughs> yeah. And um, what was it? I said to somebody once that of all the research you, you do, you usually only end up using about 10%, but that 10% is like the iceberg that you only see the top, but the 90% supports it and you have to understand it. And you sort of, in a way, become an expert on these things that nobody's really an expert on anymore. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so, but I, I thoroughly enjoyed it. The postmortem photography, I was fascinated. I have to say that it scared me a little bit because it, it is rather eerie. But my one main takeaway from these photographs, of course, they're really beautiful and they're they're done with such obvious love. That's the only word for it. Um, they a lot of times the the deceased look as so though they're sleeping. They're posing with sometimes with family members, which you can usually tell in the earlier daguerreotypes when there's a longer exposure time because they're slightly blurred. And of course, those who were passed on, they're they're completely in focus. But um, it amazes me the emotional control that the family members had posing with their their loved ones who have passed on. Because I know that for myself, when my mother-in-law died, I cried so much. My eyes were swollen. I was no picture of serenity. But you see these um, family members, and they're posing with their loved ones. And a lot of times they're smiling. Like They don't look joyful, but there's a sense of serenity about it. And, you know, maybe because they had religious beliefs that 
we don't necessarily feel as certain about in the 21st century about being, you know, reunited with our loved ones on the other side. But my theory is that if you had only one photograph of somebody that you loved, you would want it to be a reflection of the love you had for them, not your sorrow. So that I found very moving. And it, you know, it's it's touching and it, it it's, it's comforting very touching. too. It is kind of comforting and... Um, you know, a lot of times these photographs would be presented in these almost like these leather, like leather folders, you know, or portfolios, and they would have sayings like "secure the shadow," um, "ear the substance fade," like "hold on to what there is before it fades away." So they were holding on to memory in this tangible form. You know, it's it's really quite a wonderful way of dealing with grief and. Um, Unlike today, where I think we kind of sanitize it a bit. Well, we don't want to talk about it. We right? don't want to talk about it. We're kind of in denial that we're going to live forever. Yeah, and, and I think it's also it's a change of environment and medicine because back then people well, yeah. would die all around you all the time. Well, yeah, like I think it was 1836, I believe there was this Asiatic flu epidemic and you know, many, many thousands of people died or in cholera. I don't know if you watched Victoria, but um, which I became obsessed with, of course. I loved it. But there's this one episode about the cholera epidemic that, you know, happened in, in London. I think it was 1850 or something like that. I don't have my exact date in front of me. But, you know, people would just get sick and then they'd be dead the next day. And it was all traced back to this one well. It's a different time. I think we're a little bit better for it, but at the same time, like you said, well, I think having that, these rituals uh, yes. that mark you out to the world so that you don't have to deal with somebody like, hey, it's a great day today. How you doing? Uh, yeah. You you know? Know? <laughs> exactly. I know. That's what I would be on the subway and I'd be like, don't cry, don't cry, don't cry. At least in New York City, nobody will say anything if you're crying on the subway. No. they Well... Unless you're me, I talk to people on the subway. So <laughs> I'm always like, oh, I like your hat. I like your widow. Because I feel like I'll try and be nice and give them, make them happy for the day, you know? <laughs> I think that's very nice of you and very unique. <laughs> oh, I just want to be like a force for light, you know? I love that. And, you know, it's funny that you say that because the book feels kind of dark, a little macabre. And I think that's just the setting of it in, in the idea that it's like this gothic mystery in a way. And all the birds, too. There's so many birds in this book. Yes, there's a lot of <laughs> birds. I became obsessed with birds, and people ask me about that all the time. But, um, but, And they also mention Edgar Allan Poe because there are ravens in it. And I wasn't really thinking about Edgar Allan Poe. I was thinking more, and I think this goes back to my background as a visual artist, which is what I, I worked as a book illustrator when I first uh, was working in publishing. I was thinking about light versus dark. So there are these doves, which also are part of the book that um, the poet's wife, Ada, has a pair of doves, which are given to her by the poet, and and it kind of symbolizes their love. And then there's also a raven that comes to her, which is feral. And um, so there's like these two equations of the light and the dark, and which is going to win out. But um, ultimately, I do think that The Lost of Dreams is about, you know, finding your way out from the darkness and finding redemption. So even though it's dark and gothic, there's also a lot of light and joy, at least at the end. I hope that's not a spoiler, but it has a happy ending. <laughs> <laughs> no, no spoilers here. No spoilers. That's right. I guess, you know, the 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 only other question I really have is, you know, all this talk of we talk about death and how it informed the book and, you know, ghosts are, do you believe in ghosts? I 
believe in ghosts somewhat. I don't know if I believe in them in the way that the spiritualists did where there were ectoplasm and um, all sorts of other phenomena, but I've I've definitely had experiences. I feel it's kind of like energy that lingers, if you will. I also know that in my house, I live in one of those, you know, Victorian houses in Ditmas Park Park in Brooklyn where you just have the sense of so much history in them. And when we first moved in, we had a few rather unsettling experiences that I I felt like, is this a ghost or not? For example, two days after we moved in, our door locked behind us, but it was a door that it didn't have a key and there's no way it could have locked behind us. So that was really, really strange. And there were a few other things that happened that after a while we found these offerings that I I don't know where they came from, Like, like an umbrella was left outside my door on a rainy day. And I was, oh, my God, it's a ghost at first. <laughs> um, but it didn't feel like it was necessarily a um, a negative uh, or a malignant ex- um, presence. It just felt like very puzzled, like, what are you doing here? And there's one corner of my stairwell, which myself, as well as my husband, as well as my daughter, have seen shadows out of the corner of our eyes mm-hmm. and another place in our living room. But I also have to say that the longer we've lived there, the less I've sensed them. So maybe they've kind of moved on, or maybe they've settled, or maybe we're just we've become used to part having of you that. around. Yeah. <laughs> so there's that, and and whether it's my imagination or whether it's actual energy, I don't know. Does it really matter? No. If anything, it it's good stories, and that's what it all comes down to. It's is it a good story? If it's a good story, who cares? <laughs> We've been talking about the lost history of dreams. Chris Waldhair, thank you for coming in and talking to us. Oh, thank you for having me, Lisa. It's been really fun. And that's where this chapter comes to an end. Next time, we hear from an author sounding the largest alarm he can find about global warming. You can always find us on Twitter and Instagram at WCBS 880 Books. I'm Lisa Cherkovich.